Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and each week I have the opportunity to introduce to you experts in varied fields regarding energy. This week, the, what we're really talking about is water. And you might wonder what water has to do with energy, but in fact, it has a lot to do with oil and gas extraction, and particularly wastewater, the disposal of wastewater. Last month, I was excited to be able to go to see a project, an experimental kind of project, where they were taking produced water, water that comes up out of the ground along with oil as a part of the extraction process, and that water has been recycled, and they were using it in agriculture. Now, this was an experimental project, and uh, a lot more is going to be done with this, but that's what we're going to be talking about this week, and that's what I wrote my column on, considering water is one of the, the emerging issues nationally, it's exciting to see what the oil and gas industry is doing to solve what could otherwise be a national problem. So first, I'm excited to have with me today Bill Weathersby, and Bill is the CEO of a company called Energy Water Solutions, and this project that we're going to talk about was his idea. So, Bill, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. You bet. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, you know, I was really excited, and I hope when you read my column that I wrote about your project, I hope that you could sense my enthusiasm for this project in the in the words on the paper. But I was very excited to see what you all were doing. So tell us about your project and where the idea came from. Sure, yeah, so I actually did read the column, and yes, I could tell you were excited, and I appreciate that because it's been probably about eight months of very hard work. <laughs> so the idea for the project came about from a, a friend of mine at the A&M Agricultural Extension Research Center. I was working on a project with him to do something totally different, and we got into the discussion of West Texas, Pecos in particular, and the troubles they were having with water. And I, I just made a comment to him that said, you know, it's a shame that the state won't allow us to discharge produced water after it's been recycled because I've done it in Colorado for some time, and it seems like that West Texas could actually use that, that service. So yeah, let me interrupt you for a sec, Bill, if I may, because I, I, one thing I didn't really get clear is other states, not Texas, but other states are actually already using recycled water in agriculture. Is that correct? They are. So there's a little-known law. It's actually a federal law. It's in the federal regulations. And everything west of the 98th meridian, which basically, ironically, is about 30 miles west of where Pecos is. Okay, so everything okay. west of that, everything west of that under uh, the federal regulations says that if you can get produced water to a certain level that you can discharge it. So states like Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, California, it's, it's legal by federal rule. Now, a state may restrict it somewhat, or they might give you a very, very tight permit, but it's not illegal. It's perfectly legal. And so I don't think it's called CFR 80. I don't think many people realize that that's actually a federal regulation. Yeah, I, I obviously didn't realize that, so I was confused on that. Is it widespread? Is produced, re recycled produced water, is it used widely in agriculture in these other states? 
Mainly Wyoming is probably the leader. So I, I actually did a, uh, a talk in a paper about two years ago on water rights. And one of the things that, that struck me was doing the research Wyoming basically was facing the challenge of some of their wetlands going dry. And so they, they made a conscious decision because a lot of that is gas up there. It's not heavy oil to allow produced water to be put into their wetlands. So they put something like 800 million barrels of produced water into their wetlands and, and actually say that, uh, you know, they say that the, saving of those wetlands was totally due to that. And there's all really? kinds of articles on it. Yeah, there's all kinds of articles out there about two okay. years old. Now, but, yeah, ha- so- but, but with that said, has a project like what you were a part of in Pecos ever been done where it's really the, the results are, are really verifiable? No, no, no. Most, most okay. of the time, the people, uh, so whoever has those permits in Wyoming and Colorado, essentially uh, the way that those permits work is, they give you a specific permit by constituent by volume, uh-huh. and it's it's up to you to fill out paperwork every month that says that I'm in I'm in you know concert with the exactly. And so mm-hmm. I don't think anybody really ever goes back and looks at those. I'm sure if you were out of compliance one month, they would come and say something. But if you're as long as you're in compliance, I don't think a whole lot of people pay attention to it. They just file them and say fine. Okay. All right. Well, that's helpful. Okay. Sorry. I just, when you mentioned the other states, I, I was unclear on that. So I didn't want to lose that. So, okay. So you go, let's go back to your project in Texas. You bet. So, so I was having that discussion with the A&M AgriLife guys and said, you know, we've been putting water on the ground for some time under EPA permit. It would be really nice if there's some way we could show the state because um, I know, do you know, we lobby a lot and, one of the lobbyists that we use was pushed some water uh, legislation through last year, but it, it came up short of actually saying you could do what we tried to do. So uh, the gentleman I know, Bob Avant, said, hey, look, we, we have an experimental station out in Pecos. That's exactly what it's designed for. We, we conduct nothing but experiments and research on everything from produced water to algae to human. So... Um, A&M was doing everything from produce water to algae to the next new fertilizer to, you know, new seed crop, right? And so they actually have very specific things they can do on that land as defined by the state. And so Bob said, you know, I think if you can convince some people to get a project together, I'm pretty sure we'll have to check, but I'm pretty sure that would fall within our research domain. So we, I spent some time with him. And sure enough, it did. And so the first thing they said was uh, the Railroad Commission in Texas has jurisdiction even over the research facility, so you're going to have to convince them that it's something we want to do. So we went to the Railroad Commission, and uh, like you heard Commissioner Porter say, it, it wasn't received necessarily greatly in his office, but they allowed it to occur. And what they did was to limit any kind of uh, liability or anything. They just said, look, it's the first time it's ever been done. Why don't you limit the volume to somewhere in the 30,000 to 50,000 barrel range? We'll limit the amount of water that can go on the ground to 15,000 barrels. And you have to talk to the A&M Agricultural Group to figure out exactly what constituents they're comfortable with letting you put on the ground. So that's how the project really got started. Yeah, so then, um, you know, where, where has it gone from there? Obviously, I know because I've seen it, but for our listeners, uh, where has the project gone from there? 
Yeah, so the Railroad Commission gave us a permit. I took that permit, went back to the A&M University system, and we worked with their uh, legal group, an HSNE group. They put a, a what I view as a very, very restrictive limit on the constituents that we could actually apply to the cotton. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, can luck- we luckily can meet those constituents, so I just said fine. At that point, we needed uh, some water, so we approached Anadarko, which has some wells close by, and, and we had done some work with them in the past, and, and I know that they are very uh, forward-thinking environmentally. And so they said, look, as long as the Railroad Commission says you have a permit and A&M said it's okay, then, yeah, we'd like to participate because we'd like to see what the outcome is. Mm-hmm. So once we had that, I moved a production unit from the Eagleford out to West Texas, we talked to And when you say a production unit, again, just for our listeners who may not know what we're talking about, when you say a production unit, you mean a mobile recycling facility of sorts. Is that correct? Correct. So it was in production. Uh, we had had it three years, I think, in the Eagleford, which is South Texas. And believe it or not, there's actually a slowdown down there now. And so uh, because of the slowdown, uh, the guys that we had it on location said, you know what, we'd like to see what it can do as well, so why don't you take it out there and then bring it back? So uh-huh. they, gave me kind of, they gave me a six-month window to move it and bring it home. So okay, we, we, moved, we moved it out of production to Pecos, and then we worked with the A&M guys to put a berm around all the equipment. We had about 12 frack tanks out there from Gibson Energy and berm the entire thing. And then ultimately, uh, Anadarko brought us the water. We cleaned it. We worked with the A&M guys, Katie, and whoever else was out there to basically let them say, hey, we know the watering schedule, so what we need from you is fresh water in this tank at this time. And then that's basically the way we ran. So we worked with them. They actually did all the watering. But you had a huge amount of cooperation from the Anna and AgriLife people, Anna Darko, Gibson, and all of this had to come together at the right time. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, and it, it was, uh, like I said, it took me about eight and a half months to convince everybody to do it. But we started it in May and uh, grew the cotton, A&M planted it. Uh, they designed the experiment. They figured out what row, what cotton was grown on, how many acres, and then they put the watering schedule down. So Katie's pretty much in charge of all that. And yes, and of course we're going to talk with we're going to talk with Katie in our next segment as well. So we only have a few, just a couple minutes left, Bill, before uh, you know we we run out of time. What 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 do you see has been the success of this project, and what do you see as the future? Yeah, so, you know, you hate to say I, I knew so, but, I mean, we had done eight, 8 million barrels or more of water like this in Colorado in the past, so I wasn't concerned. I, I saw the water sampling both pre and post, and so I wasn't too concerned with it. I guess my takeaway was uh, the water, the natural water coming out of the ground in West Texas is about 3,000 TDS of salt, which is a little bit saltier than you would like. And, and our limits, based on the A&M uh, request, were much less than that. So my hope was that the blended water or the recycled water, because the salt content was less, would actually make the crop grow better. Yes. Um, make it a better grade, make it a higher yield. And so uh, that jury's still out, but you, you heard like I did. Katie thought that, uh, that that was where the research was headed, and so we just have to wait and see uh, until she actually writes her white paper. But my outcome, what I was hoping for, 
was basically to get exactly what we got, which was A&M, which is a definitive agricultural know-it-all in the state, basically saying, hey, we, we've done this, and it appears to have worked just fine. Good. So in about 30, 30 seconds left, uh, you know, what's the future? So I think the future is the Texas legislature meets again in 2017. I would like both the A&M white paper and the uh, MWH global white paper to be used as kind of the foundation. Now, we haven't mentioned the MWH paper. Quick, what is that? Uh, so, so A&M's doing all the crop science, soil science, crop science. MWH is actually doing an environmental study, which has to do with how much water was used, what's the technology, you know, how much energy was used, what's the total per dollar per barrel. So, so they're doing kind of the environmental and economic okay. information. All so right. their white papers, their white papers due in January. And so what I'm hoping to do is use both those two white papers as the foundation for the start of the debate in Austin in 2017 around possibly allowing for limited discharge of produced recycled water as long as you can get a permit for it. So that, that's what I'm hoping is the next step. Great. Bill Weathersby, CEO, Chairman and CEO for Energy Water Solutions, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy and explaining this exciting project to us. Well, thank you for having me. And um, like you said, you're excited. I'm excited. I, I hope it goes the direction we think it is. It looks like it will. Thanks so much for joining us. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back with America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. As you heard in our previous segment, this week we're talking about using uh, produced water, water that comes up out of the ground along with oil and natural gas, and that water can now be recycled and used in agriculture, except for not in Texas. They, the law doesn't allow that. So we were talking with Bill Weathersby, Chairman and CEO of Energy Water Solutions, about their project. And now I'm excited that we're going to talk with Katie Lewis, who Bill talked about in our last segment. And she is an assistant professor with Texas A&M AgriLife Research. She specializes in soil, chemistry, and fertility. And she is the one who designed the project that Bill was just talking about. And so, Katie, I appreciate your taking your time today to share with us how this project has progressed and what you did with it. So welcome to America's Voice for Energy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, I was there, saw the project. I'm very excited about it and what it holds because I think it's exciting to see that the industry is kind of out ahead of this, that this is not something that the government has mandated, but yet the industry is out there looking for a solution to a, an existing problem that they have, and you've played an important part in that. Can you explain that to us? Sure. Um so I think, as Bill has probably mentioned, what we were trying to do is take this produced water, blend it with the well water, and try to grow a cotton crop. Uh, we had several or two objectives, primarily to look at cotton yield, to see if it's affected by this blend, comparing that to using well water for irrigation. And then secondly, to also look at soil parameters, both chemical and physical, to see if we have an accumulation of salts in the soil, um, maybe some other elements such as boron. Um, we designed a study, like I said, with the blended water. It was a four-to-one ratio of the produced water to the well water and had three replications. It was a scientifically sound design for an experiment. And so back in June, you uh, uh, planted the cotton uh, using and watered it uh, with the blended water and with the well water. Exactly, yes. We had um, several different irrigation events. In total, we ended up putting on roughly um, 12 acre inches of water across the field. But like you said, uh, we had a well water treatment that was simply the irrigation was from the well water source, but also the blended water which was the well water and blended water and produced water. Mm -hmm. The recycled produced water. Exactly, yes. Mm -hmm. And we planted cotton, we planted Delta Pine 1359 at the beginning of June. Um, we're set to harvest tomorrow, so we'll be out in the field uh, hand harvesting that cotton. Once we get it harvested and ginned, we'll have the lint yield data as well as quality parameters such as uh, micronear, link, color for that. Yes, and Bill mentioned that you're going to be writing a white paper once all those test results are in that will kind of make really clear how this came out. So I know you don't know that yet. But you're, you've been watching this cotton grow all summer. You've been there. You've watched it. You've felt it. Uh, what do you think that you're going to find? 
I really, I'm not sure that we'll necessarily see any differences, which in my mind, at least for the time being, that's a good thing. If we're not seeing any reduced reduction in yield with this blended treatment compared to the irrigation water, I think we're definitely in a good place to move forward uh, with additional treatment, um, different ratios of blended and well water. But as far as right now, I really don't think just Looking out across the field, we're not going to see any differences. However, our yield data will definitely, uh, it'll, it'll let us know what, what's going on. Yeah, now when I was there in early November, I was at, at your, your research site with you in early November, uh, you all had recently sprayed, uh, and correct me if my terminology is wrong, because uh, this is not my area of expertise at all, but you had, you had sprayed the defoliant on the on the field, and yeah. the uh, water that was the cotton that was grown with well water to my untrained eye appeared to be um, losing its leaves more quickly on that cotton to me the the bowls appeared to have opened sooner, and the the blended water crop seemed to still have leaves and the bowls had not opened quite as much. That was nearly, a, that was a month ago. What have you seen since? Um, well, I think just to clarify that a little bit more, so I think what we may have been seeing there was just that the, the cotton that had been irrigated with well water may have been shutting down a little bit sooner, which is a natural process in cotton. Um, Compared to the blended water, it did seem to have more green leaves, and we had just defoliated one or two days before that field day, so really uh -huh. there hadn't been enough time, sufficient time for true defoliation to occur. Uh, okay. But it did, it did appear that those plants were, uh, the blended water-treated plants were definitely more green, more lush-looking. Um and, and since then, it's definitely opened up. The field is completely white now. Um, it's definitely ready to harvest. Oh, good. Good. Well, I'm, I'm excited to see that. Now, I, I asked Bill about the future, and he talked about uh, legislation, which is, of course, down the road 2017. Um, you're hoping, if, if I recall from our conversations, to be able to, to redo this project again next year with perhaps different blends of water. Exactly. Um, I, I really do. I hope that we can continue this research. I think it's going to play a big role not only in energy production but also in agriculture because if we can reduce that amount of well water that we're pulling from the ground for agriculture by using this blend, blended water, I think it's going to be a plus overall. Um, what we would like to do in the future is, like you said, to add some additional treatments, maybe have a one-to-one -one blend of well water to produce treated water, maybe a one-to-two and one-to-three as well, just to see what those limitations are on the cotton crop, how much of the produced treated water can we use without affecting any yields. And there's a good possibility that, that we can... We won't see any any reduction in yield, even at that one to one or one to two ratio. But the research will tell us that. Might you do one that's one hundred percent produced water? Oh, I'm not sure we can get that approved. 
through Texas A&M or the Railroad Commission. That'll that'll be a decision that we have to make in the future. I know there's a limitation on the amount of water that we can have on site, the produced water that we can have on site. So that mm-hmm. would be our only restraint. Yeah, I recall you mentioning um, that the, you designed the project based around the amount of water the Railroad commission, commission had approved. They said you can use this much water, and so then you kind of backed into the project based on that. Exactly, yes. So initially we did have those different ratios of blended water treatments, but because of the limitations and also the parameters, the toxicity parameters of cotton, we had to decide on this one-to-four ratio. But from this year, um, just, and it's not based on yield, but just what we've seen as well, not just with the cotton, but the soil data too shows that we're not seeing a concentration of salt nor are we seeing a concentration of boron in the soil using this one-to-four ratio. So moving forward. So you have been doing soil sampling all along. Oh, most definitely, yes. Yeah. Okay. Three, three different depths. We're looking at the 0 to 6 inch, 6 to 12 inch, and 12 to 24 inch depths in the soil profile just, just to ensure that we're not, um, we're not affecting the soil properties. Are you seeing interest from other um, ag departments or other uh, – energy companies, or is kind of what we're doing now kind of the first publicity about this project? I really think it's the the first publicity. I have heard from um, more engineering, agricultural engineering faculty at Colorado State University, and we have a plan to meet in December to discuss some of what we saw and also some of the projects that they're working on. But they're definitely focusing more on the treatment process, not the application of this water. Uh, and forgive yeah. me, I'm, I'm not from your world. What do you mean by the treatment process? By how they're treating the water, the produced water. Okay. All right. The, the, the process that Energy Water Solutions is using to clean the water? Exactly, yes. Okay. They're focused right. on that, but they haven't done any of the applied field research using this water for irrigation purposes. Yeah, and you guys are the first to do that. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. So one of my hopes in writing on this after I saw the project and saw what you're doing and and obviously got excited about it is I hope that some other energy companies will come on board to make this project possible for next year and, uh, you know, allow this to, to... go forward for 2016 so that you have really a full set of data for the legislature in 2017. Oh, that would be excellent. So this, you know, this will be distributed far and wide to any, any oil company folks who might be listening. What encouragement would you give them to participate? Well, I think just based on what we've seen this year, like I said, we don't have the yield data yet, but just, Looking across the field, we're not seeing any negative effects, and I think if agriculture and energy companies can work together on this, we can reduce the amount of fresh water that we're pulling from the ground. Um, It would just be excellent. 
Yeah, and that's why I'm excited about it. You know, I wrote a column a few weeks back on the earthquakes in Oklahoma uh, that appear to be caused by the saltwater disposal wells. And mm-hmm. I, I'm excited about the, the dif- differing technologies because there's a lot of different kinds of technologies that are being used, and each each uh, reservoir is different, uh, different mm-hmm. composition. And uh, it's exciting to see what they're, what technology is able to do today. Yeah. Definitely. And I think, too, as far as agriculture goes, we know that, that water is our greatest limiting resource, and I consider it definitely to be a non-renewable resource. Once we pull it from the ground, especially in the Lubbock area, the recharge on the aquifer is so low that we have to have another source of, of irrigation water in order to continue producing cotton at the level that we are in this part of Texas. And this is a great cooperative project. I appreciate your sharing it with with us today. We've been talking with Katie Lewis, Assistant Professor for Soil Chemistry and Fertility with Texas A&M AgriLife Research. Katie, thanks for sharing your insights with us. Thank you very much. Good, Owen. Please stay with us. We'll be back with more on America's Voice for Energy. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Okay, we will now officially begin. This is going to be, David Producer, this is going to be segment number three for the December 3 show. And we will get started in three, two, one. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great. And this week we've been talking about the problems with 
produced water, water that is produced along with oil and natural gas as a natural part of the extraction process. But you might not understand exactly what that is or why it's a problem. So I've got with me now Benjamin Ackley, who is a completion engineer. He's worked with several different oil companies, larger and, and independent, and he's here to talk to us about this water and why this is a problem. So Ben, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So tell us, you know, about this water called produced water. What's it like? How does it come up? I mean, I think most of us picture, uh, you know, the old gusher oil well, and we picture black oil coming out. And for most people, the fact that water comes with it is probably a surprise. Yeah, it probably is. I don't think most people realize water just due to the fact that it's uh, often regarded as a waste stream whenever we do get it out of the well. But in almost every well in America that you drill, um, there's usually three phases that come out of that well, that being oil, one being gas, and the second one being water. And water is just naturally in the formations that we we go into and extract oil and gas out of, and it comes out along with the oil and gas. We would love to be able to keep the water down there in its place, but there's no possible way to do that. <laughs> so whenever you do go ahead and, and complete a well and turn it on to produce, uh, naturally the water is going to come out with the oil, and it happens uh, all across America, actually all across the world in, in most formations that we have. So even like in Saudi Arabia, they've got produced water coming up. That is correct, yep. Hmm. Didn't know, didn't realize that somehow, you know, you think that they just have this. They, they, you think they have it easy and they just stick a straw in the ground and out comes oil. <laughs> that would be ideal, and, and we would love to have it that way. But unfortunately, <laughs> there's no silver bullet yet we have that uh, can do that for us. Yeah, so this is part of what makes the whole process complicated that, again, the average person doesn't understand. Correct, yeah. And, and we get these different fluids that come up from the well and you know again you have to run them through their you have to separate them out at surface and once you separate them out you have two of those fluids that are valuable and can be sold that being oil and gas and the third one is water which we have to find a solution for and handle that in a uh, responsible manner as well so what has traditionally i'm talking decades ago been done with that water well in, in the very, very early days, actually, some of that water uh, was just stored on surface, and it was either evaporated or, or ran off. And then once, uh, once the the companies became more aware of what was going on in the environment, they then decided to start drilling disposal wells and injecting that water uh, back down into formations uh, and down below the the ground level, down below the aquifers, basically that we have. That we get our drinking water from. Now, when you say the the formations, these are these are layers of rock underground. When most of us kind of picture that, that, you know, those maps of geology, we see different layers in them. And so, this is what is is this a layer? Would would this be a layer then that is maybe particularly porous, or is there a hole down there? No, it's it's another rock layer that you know all the all the rock that. Uh, we complete and we produce our oil and gas from all has tiny pores within it that hold all this fluid and it's basically another layer that has uh, some pore space in it that you're able to inject water and fill up that pore space with. So 
Okay, so that's, that's helpful. Now, from what I've done in the past, my research I've done in the past, I understand that in Oklahoma, where they've had kind of a spate of earthquakes in recent history, that uh, they've come, come pretty conclusively, maybe not totally conclusively yet, but that these earthquakes are caused not from oil and gas drilling and not from fracking, as the anti-oil and grass, gas crowd would like uh, people to believe, but actually that it's caused because of um, these these wells that are drilled just to dispose of this water. That's correct, and that's what a bunch of the, the new researchers is starting to try to put together. Uh, what they, I think generally speaking what they believe is happening is that in, the, in some of these formations there's actually faults, and there's faults that run all across the ground, all across America, and, and there's some of these faults that possibly if you inject enough water into you could somehow uh, activate those faults. In other words, if you activate them enough, they're going to move a little bit, thus causing an earthquake. Um, whenever we do frack, we also in many cases record uh, seismic events while we're fracturing, and these seismic events are nowhere near in scale enough to create an earthquake that you could feel on the surface. So therefore, it kind of leads people to believe that it's happening uh, with via disposal of the, these water wells that we have all across America, and in some cases, I think in other in in some states is more prevalent than others, just due to the fact that the geology where you're injecting this water is is more complex and ha maybe has more faults that allow for that to happen. And Oklahoma is apparently one of those. I mean, I grew up in Southern California and, you know, knew Southern California was earthquake country, but I don't think anyone considers Oklahoma to be earthquake country. Yeah, that's correct. Um, historically, there haven't been a whole, a whole lot of earthquakes in that area, although there have been some historically. If you look back, I know that there's a, I believe there's a plate boundary somewhere running uh, Missouri, I think, had a had a pretty big earthquake way back in the day, and there's some activity along that plate boundary. But generally speaking, right, uh, it seems like the seismic activity in Oklahoma has picked up recently in the few years. So that's causing a need uh, for a solution to what do we do with this water, because apparently the solution that has been used in recent history, which is wastewater disposal wells, um, apparently that's maybe not such a good solution. Correct, and the industry is looking at, at a couple different ways to, to handle this, this produced water that we call it that comes up out of the ground. And I guess we also need to realize that this produced water that comes up out of the ground is uh, salty. In almost every case, not all cases, but most generally speaking, most cases, this water that comes up out of the ground is salty. And it also carries with it some uh, metals and some other uh, uh, minerals that, that it takes out of the ground whenever it's sitting down there. So most of the water that we use uh, in, in these wells in today's unconventional resources, most of the water is needed during the fracturing process. When we started having these long lateral wells and these unconventionals, uh, laterals that could reach up to two miles long, mm -hmm. we have to pump, inject water, as you know, down there to create uh, fractures, to, to connect up all the pore spaces in the fractures, so therefore we can get the oil and gas out at economic rates. Uh, if we didn't do that, the oil and gas actually wouldn't flow out at fast enough rates for, the, for us to pay out the wells. So that's where hydraulic fracturing comes into play. And hydraulic fracturing uses most of the water that we talk about um, 
in the process of completing a well. So, so therefore, wait a minute. Let me let me back up. Mm-hmm. So fracking, fracking, you t- you frack with the produced water. Well, there, that that's one solution. Uh, there there have been some frack companies that are starting to experiment with reusing that produced water and uh-huh. uh, getting the fracturing fluid such that we can reuse that produced water. Another way to handle that produced water could be to clean it up on surface and either into standards that meet the EPA's uh, discharge uh, allowances, which actually does go on in Wyoming in some cases. They do discharge some of that water that comes up out of the ground. It's fresh enough and then clean it up enough that it meets the standards of the EPA and they can discharge it. Or you can clean it up and reuse it again. When you say discharge, do they put it in a river? Uh, I believe they put it out for the farmers and ranchers to use for their their cattle and and whatever animals they might have. On the first half of the show, we've been talking about this project in Texas that I observed and take us where they're using produced water in agriculture, recycled produced water in agriculture, but really carefully testing everything uh, with the hopes of changing laws in Texas so that they can use produced water for agriculture. Yeah, that's correct. So uh, there's a lot of technology that's coming about with all this produced water coming up out of the ground. Uh, where they're able to clean it up to, to meet the standards where you can reuse it in, uh, in a way such as agriculture or maybe for cattle or and even to reuse it to fracture with again. Uh, that would be another benefit that we could use. Now, you've worked in, have you worked on wells all over the country? I have, yes. And I understand that you have a bit of experience in the Bakken where, where uh, the where the type of fracking done needs especially clean water. That is correct. Um, it, it depends on the formation and the pressures, and uh, there's a lot of variables that go into it. But generally speaking, there's kind of two different fracturing fluids that are used across most of these basins in America. One requires a, uh, a, a gel, and, and if you have that gel and you have to viscosify that gel, make it really thick, then you're going to need really clean water. Uh, another method just uses a uh, friction reducer to, to pump it down, and it's not as thick of a, of a process of a fluid, so therefore the water doesn't have to be as clean. So depending on what you need for your well, uh, it kind of sets the tone for how clean that water needs to be if you were, were to reuse that fracturing fluid. And as the completion engineer, then, is it your job to kind of figure out what you need in each well and how that's going to come together? That is correct, yes. We look at each well, we look at the pressures, uh, we look at how much sand we want to put down in the well, and we figure all that out. Um, and then from there, it kind of drives us, okay, we need to put this much sand, and we need this much viscosity, and we need this kind of fluid to be able to fracture this well. So how do you feel about the future of, of the industry? How do you feel, uh, you know, about the potential for water reprocessing that's, as new technologies are being developed? Uh, I believe as an industry, we, we're, we're moving with this technology. We're, we're moving it forward. I think it's something that needs to be moved forward. It's probably a responsible and a, a good citizen type of thing to do as an industry. And that the water we get out of the ground, we're able to reuse it in some type of uh, fashion. Uh, there are some challenges, of course, that come along with all this. Uh, one of that being the water, taking salt out of water actually can be very difficult. 
Uh, it's not just as easy as filtering it out. It uh, involves a lot more than that. And the second part of that is we also have to do it in an economical manner. Um, in order for us to continue to drill oil and gas wells, they have to be done. Uh, there has to be some value there. They're point blank, there has to be money to be made. Um, so we got to look at this as can the technology handle the, the rates that we need? Because we're talking about we're pumping tens of thousands of barrels down a well in a day. So we have to be able to use high rates, and we have to be able to do it in an economical manner as well. But you're optimistic about the future. I am optimistic about the future. I've been involved looking at water cleanup projects now for probably the past five years, and uh, more and more companies are coming up with different technologies and new ideas and new ways to handle this water. So I believe it's something that, as a as an industry, we'll definitely move forward with, and more people will get into the habit of reusing water, cleaning up water, and things such as that. Well, it's exciting to see, and we've been talking today uh, with Benjamin Ackley, who's a production or completion engineer, worked with several different companies in a variety of different fields. Earlier we talked with a company who's doing water purification uh, through one system, and next our final guest is going to tell us about a different system that's being used. So, Ben, thanks for joining us today, and for our listeners, please stay tuned for our final segment of America's Voice for Energy. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory. Ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today we've been talking about produced water, that waste water that is generated along with the process of extracting oil and natural gas. And let me remind you, if you haven't read my column on this topic, you can read it every week. You can read my column on Breitbart.com, on the American Spectator at spectator.org, townhall.com, redstate.com, many other sites 
throughout the Internet. Just do a search for my name and kind of the theme topic, and I'm sure that you'll find the column that we're discussing each week. Today in our closing segment, I'm pleased to have with me Sandy McDonald, who is the CEO of, oh, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Sandy, I'm so sorry, Kazian Water Systems. Did I get it right? Kaizen Water Systems. Kaizen Water Systems. And I, we talked about it before we came on the air, and I thought I thought for sure I had it right. Kaizen Water Systems. Now, does that name have a specific meaning, Sandy? Um, actually, Kaizen is uh, a Japanese word that means um, ever-changing. Ah, well, no wonder I had so much trouble with it, a Japanese word. I knew it was a word I wasn't familiar with, but uh, my messing it up allows us to mention it several more times for you. So Sandy McDonald, CEO of Kaizen Water Systems. Did I get it right that time? Yes, dear. Oh, good. Phew. Anyway, we've been talking about uh, a system from Energy Water Solutions, which is one of many systems out there. Sandy's company has a very different type of system, and from what the research I did in writing my column, I found that their system is especially effective in the Bakken, where the water is, is even saltier than perhaps in the Eagleford Shale Play in Texas. So, Sandy, tell us about your system and what is unique about it? I would have to say that the most unique part of our system is that we can handle any kind of or like any concentration of TDS. Um, typically, virtually every other system um, has constraints as soon as they reach the 50, 60,000 um, parts per million TDS, whereas our system uh, will handle anything. Um, I mean, we Typically, we work up to the 330,000 parts per million, and we reduce it down to, uh, on average, less than 200 parts per million, um, which is um, about the half permit, less than half of the permitted level by the EPA for um, uh, drinking water, actually. So less than half, and the TDS is total dissolved solids. Is that correct? That's correct, and it primarily consists of um, the various salts, and um, while we typically think of uh, salt as being what you see on the table, there are about a hundred or a little over a hundred different kinds of salt, which include metallics. I'm, you know, as an example, um, lithium um, is typically extracted in a um, salt form, but and potash is KCl, which is um, a salt, and of course your NaCl, which is what you put on your table. Now, I didn't know that. Are, are all of these uh, salts that are, are they, are they all found in produced water? Uh, not all of them, or if they are, they're in um, trace amounts. Um, uh -huh. You have concentrations of certain different levels. But as an example, in um, potash, KCL, is um, actually found in most samples in um, in the Balkans, and when you get into Texas and in that area, it's less and less. I mean, it's the same as when they mine it. It's, in, it's only in certain areas. Yes, I spent some time in Carlsbad, New Mexico, and there's a lot of potash mines there, and so I, I think of it as uh, a resource that's, that's extracted like that. I didn't think of it as being a part of produced water at all. Right. <laughs> no, most people don't. Yeah. So when you extract, uh, you know, your system, you said it's, it, it can handle the big differences. 
that it can handle higher uh, concentrations of total dissolved solids. What's the technology difference in your system? I think the biggest uh, differences are the fact that we do not use any form of chemicals and we do not use any form of filtration, um, no membranes. Uh, membranes are what plugs everybody else's systems off primarily. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have developed, um, uh, I, maybe I should back up just a hair. Our system was developed by um, a team of international engineers who had expertise in specific fields. And that is why I was consulting with them. We figured out um, or went after a process whereby um, you systematically took everything out. Like we don't believe that there's one magic bullet where you can use one or two technologies to make things work. We use up to nine different technologies. So we systematically work through the process. And our, we classify our system as um, electromechanical. As I said, we use... We do not inject any more chemicals. I mean, as everybody is aware, there's already enough in the water. And uh, so we've chose to go the other way. And um, the only time that we would, would use any chemicals is if we need to adjust pH up or down because um, we do have to have it at a certain point in order to, for it to be the most effective. Yeah, so your, your uh, system, is it... Are, is it functional at this point? Is it mobile? You know, tell us more. What we did is um, developed a small system, um, and then I developed a bigger system, which is capable of 50 gallons a minute, um, which uh, at the time was not portable. We're, uh, we're in the process of making it fully portable at this time. Uh, it consists of uh, three 53-foot um, trailers, and a couple of uh, support sea um, uh, can um, units, you know, like the sea cont containers that they come in, we need for uh, support equipment. And that makes it fully transportable. And our next step is to build um, what we class as a full-scale plant, which averages about 10,000 barrels a day. And what kind of test results have you had? Um, they're actually uh, better than what I expected at the very start, to be honest. Um, we we're targeting to fall within usable parameters for the um, oil and gas industry. And what we ended up finding out is the system either cleans or it doesn't clean, um, meaning that we can't hit in between targets. Uh, so when we go in to do water cleaning, it doesn't make any difference what the input water is. The output water is always going to be, uh, well, like I said, TDS averaging in the 200 parts per million range. Uh, the chemical constituents are usually maximum 20% of permitted um, potable water standards for either Canada or the U.S. They're very similar. Um, so... It basically all it does is speed up or slow down how fast it goes through the system. So what you're saying then is is you can't like tweak like if someone says, "Well, we want more boron than that." You, that's not tweakable in your system. Is that correct? That's correct. No, we would uh, we can only take it out. We can't stop it at a certain point. Now I don't know. It can is are, are other systems uh, able to do that? I don't really know. 
Um, there are some systems that have been developed that um, target different specific chemicals that they're trying to re um, reduce or focus on reducing. Or well, there's quite a few systems that can, um, I'm going to say, stop at a certain point. So if you want, as an example, if you want TDS, um, you, like there's all kinds of frack situations where they can utilize water that's in the 15,000, 20,000 um, ppm range for TDS. Well, I can't stop at 20,000. Even if it's even if I put it in at 300, I cannot stop at 20,000. Okay. All right. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, and you mentioned these many other systems, and I, I really want to point that out for our listeners because one of the things I'm most pleased with in working with this particular topic is I want people to understand that the industry is looking for solutions, the oil and gas industry. This is not something that the EPA has mandated, but this is something that the industry has seen a need for and, and is finding solutions for. And yours is a solution that maybe is optimal in certain circumstances where other systems um, really can't, can't meet. Would that be an accurate assessment? Uh, at this point in time, yes. That, so, that is exactly the way that it is. What, what do you hope for, for your system from here out? Uh, well, uh, it's the matter of um, gearing up fast enough to uh, meet the um, commitments that are uh, into place. Uh, like our biggest challenge is at this point in time um, making sure that the appropriate Funding is um, sitting behind because uh, we do have a relatively um, high capital cost. And, um, I mean, reality, everything comes back to money. And once you've got all of everything else is in place, then the challenge is to build the units fast enough. And, I mean, we're sitting with uh, uh, 28 orders in front of us as we speak right this minute. And, um, 28 orders in front of you. Yes. Wow. And, and you're, you're building those products now, but you don't have these mobile systems that can go on site available today. The, uh, I'm fine. I actually, I had a semi portable system, um, basically figuring everything after we figured out the technology, then it was a matter of, uh, making it, um, portable, like, Portable for the oil and gas industry, that means being able to hook up um, and go um, basically on a few hours' notice. And so that is what we are um, working on, like I said, right now, so that it's uh, what I would class as plug-and-play. Like you hook up, park the trailers in a specific order, you hook up the hoses, um, plug in the power, and, and push the green button for go kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, what we're ending up doing is it takes a little bit of time to figure that all out so that it's um, user-friendly when you show up on site. So that's what we're, where we're at right at this minute. And when do you think you're going to be able to have your units on, on the job? In March. In March. Wow. It's exciting. And you've got the technology all worked out already. Oh, yes. It's all going. And one thing, um, our... Like, we've got a lot of confidence in our equipment reliability um, due to the fact that the equipment and technologies um, were designed for specific application in other industries not associated uh -huh. with their new roles. Um, so 
every we already know that everything works. It was just a matter of doing some tweaking and uh, reconfiguring feed systems primarily so that everything would work together in a continuous flow system. Yeah, we're about out of time, Sandy McDonald, CEO of Kaizen Fluid Systems. Um, how can people find out more? They can give me a call if they like, or they can email me, sandy at renegadedevelopment.ca, or call me at 780-831-0323. Why don't you give your phone number one more time? 780-831-0323. Thank you so much, Sandy McDonald. It's a fascinating uh, show today looking at the technological developments in water, uh, produced water recycling, and potentially eliminating the need for saltwater disposal wells. It's exciting to see the technology as it progresses. That wraps up this week's show of America's Voice for Energy. Please check back in next week for another relevant topic to the energy industry. Thanks for listening on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.